Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Our text this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. In any good piece of literature, there are always portions that I think require an extra measure of sustained concentration in order to enjoy what is being said. Profound literature, however, doesn't play well in our um, Cliff Notes society. We have a hurry-up mentality, a give-it-to-me-quick-and-easy focus, where more and more of our reading material, quite frankly, is reduced to one-paragraph bites and summaries. You probably noticed the changes in your newspapers and your magazines to to do that because we are in information overload and certainly in our world we are an informational society and perhaps it's going to be just a practical necessity for us to reduce things to small summaries in order to to grasp the basic intent but that kind of practice I believe inoculates us from what I call critical thinking uh, real thinking deep thought that's that's profound and wide it can grasp and understand the complexities of life and what are really what's really going on the kind of thought that I think brings a man or a woman to the point of conviction you know it's hard to have convictions when you're just reading summaries in life convictions come from deep thought from enlightenment from real understanding not just a superficial grasping of the basic ideas so real that you can then turn and effectively communicate them to someone else in fact I believe that for anyone on any issue that they can't turn and effectively communicate what they know to be true to someone else, they have no understanding. They may have felt the idea, they may have superficially grasped the idea, but they don't really know the idea. This last section of Hebrews, this one from verses 18 through 25, is anything but an easy information bite. Uh, It certainly is not very attractive on the surface. That's why Bill and Bill gave it to me. Uh, nor would you be able to grasp its understanding with a casual and very superficial reading, as you'll see just in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, the truth here is really potent. Uh, It's really profound. In fact, it can be extremely life-changing. Its imagery spans thousands of years, and and that's why it's a very difficult passage uh, to preach. But for the one who stays with it long enough and who meditates on its message, it really can be spiritually life-changing. And hopefully, for some, that will be true here even this morning. Now, if you'll notice on your outlines, I've called the message Twin Peaks. (laughs) And I do so for two reasons. First of all, as we'll read here, it's about two spiritual mountains, uh, Mount Sinai and then Mount Zion. The second reason I call it Twin Peaks is because in some ways it's like that offbeat, wacko television series that some of you may have watched that's filled with all kinds of strange disconnections and imageries and cryptic messages that the viewer has to somehow figure out. And uh, evidently most people didn't figure out and that's why the show is failing. (laughs) But this passage also has a lot of cryptic messages that, as I mentioned, in a superficial glance can be disconnected and dizzying in their uh, reading and you, you leave the passage saying, what does it mean? Now, in saying all that, let's read it, and I'll let you see what I mean. 
He says in verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they cannot bear the command, If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and a myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, be, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. <laughs> Twin Peaks, right? What does it mean? That's probably what you're saying. Well, if you'll go back and look, first of all, in verse 18, it introduces us in those first three verses, 18, 19, and 20, to a mountain. It doesn't tell us what mountain it is, but uh, if you were a Jewish reader reading in the first century, you would know this would be Mount Sinai that he was speaking about because the descriptions would immediately call your mind back to Exodus 19, to the events that occurred there. Now, your mind probably didn't go immediately back to Exodus 19, so let's turn back there for a moment and get a context for what he's trying to say here. Now, in Exodus 19, uh, the children of Israel have left Egypt. They've been in the wilderness. Uh, God is assembling them as a people that uh, He wants for His name based on the promise that He gave to Abraham. And uh, he's about to give them their constitution, uh, their laws to govern their nation in chapter 20 and following. But now we're in Exodus chapter 19 for an event that occurs that uh, uh, has great relevance on our passage. In fact, our passage borrows from these events that occur here. We'll start in verse 10. We'll skip through several of the verses, but to just give you a taste. Uh, God speaks to Moses and He says to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around you, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Now skip down to verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes. And a, th and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn them, saying, Set bounds around about the mountain and consecrate it. Now that is the events that surround the passage that 
we are looking at and is drawing on the history of that particular moment. I think the thought is, is that, um, or at least the question that may come to your mind is, what is God trying to establish here with the nation of Israel? Now, as I mentioned in just a moment, as he goes on into chapter 20 and following, he will set forth the laws by which he wants his people to engage him with. This may surprise you just a bit, but I think there was a central thought that's expressed several times in this passage that God was trying to communicate to the people. You might just jot this down. What he was trying to establish with these people from the outset, before he engaged them in further interaction over a period of time, was that he was unapproachable. <laughs> Is that he's unapproachable. Not only does the smoke and the fire and the thunder and the shaking of the mountains say it, but God says it. He says it very clearly. Stay away from me. That's what he says, doesn't he? Look again there in verse 12. He says to Moses, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. God, I believe, is setting forth a very significant spiritual truth in this moment. It's something that we've forgotten. <laughs> He's trying to tell these people, as sometimes he wants to help us understand, that there is an incredible gulf that separates you and me and He. That He is not like us. And that from that distance and from those differentnesses, it keeps Him from fully embracing us, at least in the beginning. He is absolute pure in His character. He is perfect holiness in every respect with no inconsistency. He is unfailingly righteous. His very nature and character separates Him from us entirely. It makes Him impossible to have an intimate, easy, approachable relationship with people who are not like Him and fall very, very short when it comes to Him. Now that's very realistic, by the way. It's something that needs to be established before we go on and then engage Him. We know, by the way, this truth from our own everyday interaction with people and with the relationships we have with people. We best relate to people who are like us. Now, you can argue it any way you want, but the reality, everything that yells out at us is that we best relate to people who are like us, to people who hold the values that we hold, to people who enjoy the things that we enjoy. And if our values and our enjoyments and our interests and our beliefs cannot be reconciled with someone of a different nature and character, no matter how much we might, at least from a distance, accept them for what they are and what they believe and what they do, the fact of the matter is we will not relate to them intimately. We'll not want to. We'll move to someone who is more like us. We have no common ground, so we stand at a distance from those people. And that's what God is saying to these people. <laughs> I'm different than you. Because I'm different than you, I have to stand at a distance from you and you from me because we're not like each other. At least not yet. Not now. Marriage is another way we see that because marriage requires two very different people uh, to come together and find common ground. And they marry hoping for that. They expect an intimacy to be bonded over time. But if they don't, 
And if they don't find those commonalities of values and purpose and direction, there'll be no intimacy. There'll be no fulfillment of what God says is the purpose of marriage, and that is oneness. And when their differences stand higher than the things that they hold in common, though they may be contractually obligated to one another, they in fact have no real relationship. And we know people who are like that. They go on living together, at least for a time, but with separate lives, going separate directions, even though they're under the same roof. I want you to know that God was contractually obligated to these people. If you remember back in Genesis 12, He made a contract, a covenant with Abraham, and He said that, I'm going to be with you. You're going to be with me. We're going to be joined together, and I'm committing myself to you. So He was under a contractual obligation with these people. But here in Exodus 19, He says, just because we're under contract does not necessarily mean we can be friends and intimate and enjoy a relationship with one another. Doesn't guarantee that. Because, if I can paraphrase Exodus 19, he's saying, we are just too different. We're not like one another. And in the terrifying sights and sounds and the smoke and the fire and the quakes, the people knew that God was right. That's why it says in our passage that even Moses was terrified and said, I am full of fear and trembling. That's why in almost every case that the living God appears or makes an appearance before man, the first thing man does is hit his face, fall on his face and say, depart from me. Because he can't stand it. It's too different. That's a different way of looking at God, isn't it? We're always told about how God's our friend and approaches us. But sometimes we need to be reminded that God is not like us. He's far above us. So majestic that we could not stand to be in His presence, not fully. At least not now. And that's what these people discovered. So what are we to do? Or at least, let's go back in their case. What were they to do? How were they to bridge the gulf and earn that relationship that they wanted and that God wanted and that they were contracted to do? It's like a marriage. Well, that's an excellent question. And if you'll notice that following Exodus 19, as I mentioned, comes Exodus 20, where Moses comes off Mount Sinai with those Ten Commandments, those tablets. And he also brought a lot of other commandments that came out of those Ten Commandments. And because he came off Mount Sinai with those tablets of law, how to live before God, the fact is that Mount Sinai became symbolic with the law. In fact, when you mention to a Jew Mount Sinai, he thinks the law. Right, Jack? <laughs> but there's something else that happened with the Jewish people. Mount Sinai became symbolic with something else. And uh, it became symbolic of a tragic mistake, I believe. A mistake that has been repeated not by just Judaism, but it is a mistake that has been repeated by every major religion of the world. And I want you to listen very closely here. And we see this all the way through the life of Israel, all the way until the coming of Jesus Christ. And that mistake is this. These people thought, after they had seen how different God was than them, they thought that by obeying the law that came from Moses off Mount Sinai, or in, in, the, in, in the case of other religions, the law that came from Buddha's lips, 
are the law that came from Mohammed after he returned from isolation in the desert, or the law that came from Joseph Smith after he had the encounter with the angel Moroni, those laws, they thought that by obeying these laws that somehow they could bridge the gulf between themselves and God, and in so doing, earn a relationship with Him by being good enough. And so through the centuries, all of religion is a way of seeing what's right, envisioning those ideals, and knowing that God perfectly meets those ideals, and then clawing and scratching like crazy to live up to those ideals enough that God would then accept them and embrace them in an intimate relationship. And that's what Israel did. Over and over again, they made the law an end in itself. And they sought to live by that law, thinking if they could just be good enough, God would embrace them in a special relationship. The problem is, and I think most of you know this, but if you don't, I want you to hear this. If we're really honest, and if we think about it, which this passage is inviting us to do, to think about it long enough and hard enough, if we really do that, we will find that seeking to keep the law does just the opposite, <laughs> doesn't it? Rather than giving us evidence to say, God, now I'm good enough for you. Hold me, hug me, love me, be with me. The law does just the opposite. What the law does is condemn you. What the law does is show you that you're not good enough. It shows you why you're unacceptable. It shows you why God is indeed unapproachable. It shows how far you have to go. It says that you fail too much. You fall short too often. You can never be good enough for a perfect God. That's what it shows you. And that's why when I was in Egypt, I remember talking to a, an older Muslim there. As we talked, and we talked about the law, I said, will you be good enough for God? And there's just a question mark. Talk to a Mormon. Are you good enough for God? He hopes he will be. He's working to be. But he's not sure. And he won't be sure till he gets there. And his relatives standing around his casket won't be sure. They'll wonder where they'll be too when they go and meet God. That's what this is talking about. By trying to be holy, we find out how unholy we are. By trying to love like God, we find out how selfish we are. By trying to obey, we find out how rebellious we are. And by trying to be moral, we find out how impure we really are. See, the law mirrors back to us. Look in the mirror, and it mirrors back to us maybe a few successes, hopefully a few successes. But it also mirrors back to us those incredible flaws that show why we're not acceptable to God. And in time, the law becomes for the Jew what it becomes for the Buddhist, what it becomes for the Muslim, what it becomes for the Mormon who is trying to earn a relationship with God by being good enough. It ends up being the very evidence by which God can rightfully say from Mount Sinai, Stay away! You're not good enough for me. You can never reach me. We cannot relate. We're just too different. So in our context here in, Mount, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 
Mount Sinai represents three things. I want you to jot them down. It represents this mountain with the quaking and the fire and the smoke. It represents God's unapproachableness. It also is the mountain that mirrors our unacceptableness, no matter how hard we try to live by the rules that come off the mountain. And it is a mountain of fear. Because if we are not acceptable God to God, what does that mean? <laughs> and that is a fearful question. I want you to know, don't run by Exodus 19 or even this passage too quickly. These people were scared to death. That's why so often people have a hard time talking about religion. Have you ever noticed that? Walk into a crowd and they can be talking about anything and everything. But if you bring up God or Jesus Christ or Buddha or religion, everybody kind of gets nervous. And you know why they get nervous? Because whether they know it consciously or not, there's this deep thought that says, will I be good enough? That's scary. And you want to draw back and be afraid because you know you're not. And that's what the law does. That's what Mount Sinai does for people. You know, there, there are many, many groups that preach the law. Some of you have come from those. Where you hear week after week, do this and do that and don't do this. Probably more don'ts than do's. Don't, don't, don't. And if you, if you, and if you do, be afraid. It scares you to death. Because you think somehow, I'm, I, 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 you know, I've got to live up to this or I won't be acceptable. And a lot of people try real hard for a while. Remember our verse, this chapter starts out with running a long distance race with endurance. And you can start that long distance race trying to be good enough for God. But you know, that gets old after a while, doesn't it? It gets old when you get to be a teenager and you get in your 20s, you get in your 30s where all you ever feel is, I'm working real hard, but will I be good enough? Will I be acceptable? And at the end of the finish line is not medals. At the end of the finish line is this judge that's going to go, qualified, disqualified. That's all. That's all at the, at the end. Some of you noticed on, uh, in January that uh, Time Magazine named Ted Turner Man of the Year. Ted Turner has made some pretty strong statements against Christianity. He says it's a religion for losers. Ted Turner grew up in a fundamentalist home. He was made to go to church every day, almost. And he heard rules, rules, and more rules. And there comes a time where you're working to get someone to accept you, but you can't run a long-distance race when every time you do something good, they just raise the bar higher and say, work harder. And there's never an assurance that you're ever going to get there. Finally, at some point, you do one of two things, and that's exactly what these groups do. You either start playing a game like the Pharisees. You start kind of creating these little things to, to justify yourself to say, I'm righteous, like the Pharisees did, even though you know you're not. Or you quit, and you run away from that kind of religion, and you hate it for the rest of your life. And anytime anybody brings up that kind of religion, it just, it just boils you over. And that's what Ted Turner has done. That's what Mount Sinai represents. That's where these Hebrew Christians were for a long time until they heard Jesus Christ come and present something totally different. <laughs> and it just blew them away. It was a whole new contractual obligation to God that didn't depend on 
keeping rules. And that's what Mount Zion is all about here in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at it, if you would, in verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion is another kind of cryptic image here for a moment that probably um, needs an explanation. Mount Zion was a very special place to the Jews. Uh, it was where David first brought the ark of God. You know, remember the ark was the symbol of the presence of God. He brought the ark of God to uh, Mount Zion and placed it there. Uh, later on, as Solomon took over the reins from David, he moved uh, the ark to Mount Moriah. But by that time, the whole area around Jerusalem, uh, of which uh, Mount Zion is very close to, but the whole area around Jerusalem, including Jerusalem itself and the temple, became known as Zion to represent kind of the place of God and the salvation of God. In Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14, you kind of get a flavor of how special Zion had become when it says, and this is the Lord speaking, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. It was in Zion that man was shown how to have a relationship with God, and it was far from Mount Sinai in its effect. Whereas Mount Sinai was associated with the law of God, uh, Mount Zion was associated with sacrifices to God. Remember the temple? All that magnificent gold and, and that tremendous structure, and what was taking place there? People would stream in from all over the world to offer sacrifices unto God. And with those sacrifices, a whole new way of coming to God and relating to God was proposed and illustrated in the animals every day, round the clock, 24 hours a day. That there was a new way of relating to God. That you didn't relate to God based on your performance. That the way you related to God, the bridge that would get you to this intimacy that you desire was not by your works, but it was by a sacrifice. That's how you could find God approachable. A sacrifice would create a whole new contractual arrangement. In fact, that contract is mentioned even in Hebrews chapter 12. If you look at verse 24, it says Jesus, the mediator of a new contract. <laughs> a new covenant. And this contract required two things to take effect. First of all, it required that God accept the sacrifice in place of man's pitiful performance. That's what it required. Now, we know, by the way, as we look back in the New Testament, that when Jesus made His sacrifice, and of course, this is speaking of Jesus. All those sacrifices were just kind of a, a, a type of Jesus to come. But when Jesus came as the Lamb of God and made His sacrifice for our pitiful performance, the Scripture says that God honored that and accepted that sacrifice as a substitute for our performance by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 15? It says this, If Christ had not been raised from the dead, you would still be separated from God. You would still be standing at the base of that mountain with that police tape around the mountain saying, Don't go near for fear of death. That's where you'd be. But because God accepted the sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead as proof that's why we'll celebrate Easter uh, this year. The tape was taken down, and God says, Come, 
you can come to me. So it required God to accept the sacrifice. The second thing is it required that man give up trying to earn his way to God and believe in the sacrifice. Now, you know, it's a humbling thing. It really is, isn't it? To admit, 20th century man, to admit that you're not good enough. I've seen people shake and cry before they could take my hand and give up trying to be good enough. To admit I will never be good enough, no matter how hard I try. To think that I have to, in fact, look for someone else's help in order to be acceptable to God. That's a hard thing. And I don't take it lightly. But you know, you can only understand that when you come to understand how different God is from you. See, that's why that has to be established. Because until you understand how magnificent He is, how pure He is, how holy He is, how consistent He is, you will never understand how much help you need. Not just to come to God, but even after you've come to God, to relate to God. I was talking to an individual the other day, and as we were talking, he said, the greatest truth that I've received since coming to this church, even though I'm a Christian, is to understand that even as I engage in the marketplace and in business things and in my marriage and with my kids and all that, that I cannot trust myself because I need help. If I'm going to do it God's way, it's too far beyond me. And if I think I can do it on my own, I make the fundamental mistake. Some of you have probably come from religious backgrounds where that's never been clearly explained. Maybe you've thought, uh, even recently, maybe by doing something that was... Uh, uh, really a kind of a, a, a bold sin. Maybe after you did that, you thought to yourself, God could never accept me now. Uh, maybe just as you contemplate uh, thinking about dying, you think, boy, I hope I'm good enough. I hope I make it. Maybe you've grown up in a religious tradition where it's been taught just like that. If you think thoughts like that, you've not understood this passage about Zion and Mount Sinai. Because Mount Sinai would say, you'll never be good enough. And you can't find your way to God through work. You can only find it through a sacrifice. You see, coming to Mount Sinai is a way a holy God and sinful man can come together for the first time in an intimate union. Jesus' sacrifice of Himself, this cross, you know what this cross stands for? It stands for common ground. For the first time, man and God have something that they needed in order to meet in the middle of the bridge and to relate to one another. It's something they both value. It's something that they both had to have in order to relate to one another. It's something that they both love. It's Jesus. And in finding that common ground for the first time, they have access to one another where they can run freely into one another's arms. Do you understand that new contract? That it can never be by performance. You can never be good enough for God. It has to be through the help of another, a sacrifice. You see, Mount Sinai says, stay away. We can't relate. You're not good enough. Mount Zion says, come. Even though you're not good enough, you go ahead and come. 
A sacrifice has excused your performance. You know, I think it would only be appropriate if we just stopped right here. And if, if you are insecure about where you are with God, if coming to church, you think, man, by coming to church, somehow you're going to be good enough. Joining this church, it's not going to ever make you good enough. You come to God through Jesus Christ alone. He's your only hope. And all you have to do is accept the sacrifice. He'll excuse the performance. Pray with me, would you? And if that is you, all you need to do is say this. Lord Jesus, I understand that I will never be good enough to approach God. I'll never be acceptable enough to know God, not intimately. And He will not approach me because I'm too unholy. But through Jesus Christ, I now understand there's a whole different way, not based on performance, but based on Him giving His life for me and God accepting that sacrifice. And as a result of accepting that, excusing my performance so that now I can relate to God freely and openly even though I still remain imperfect. So Lord, here this morning, it's clear to me, and I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's what it means. I now understand He's saving me from my own self-performance, and He's giving me a way to relate to God fully and openly. And I receive Him as such. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, according to our passage, if you did that, there's a lot of blessings that immediately accrue. Would you look at them there? It starts out in verse 22. It says that you come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What does that mean? Really, it's another way of saying the kingdom of God. To accept that way is to come into the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born again means to establish a different way to find God. And that different way is not based on performance, but a sacrifice. It says that you come to myriad of angels, those ministering agents of God that are sent by Him to help foster and encourage that relationship. It says you come to the general assembly who are, who are enrolled in heaven. I think that's a clear reference to the church. You become part of God's universal church. You come to God the judge of all, but you come to this judge no longer in fear. You come to this judge because of a sacrifice, excited. says that you come to the spirit of men made perfect, probably a reference to the Old Testament saints like Abraham, who even though God gave his law to those who followed him, he did not relate to God based on performance. It says God, I mean, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's how he came to God, just by believing Him. It sounds so simple, and yet it's so profound. It says that you come to Jesus, this mediator of the relationship, because of His blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain slew Abel, and it says that Abel's blood cried out from the ground, revenge. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, life for life. He wanted revenge from the grave. And that blood, that cry of blood, chased Cain away in fear because he knew he should die. Jesus' blood is better than that. It doesn't chase men into exile. It doesn't make them feel guilty. It doesn't beat them down for their poor, poor performance. No matter how pitiful it's been this week, Jesus' blood keeps crying out, Come! 
There's access here. You're welcome. I've taken care of that performance. You can come without fear or intimidation. Just come. You see, that's the new contract. If we can go back up the ladder, here's how it starts. It starts with the blood. Not just any blood. It starts with the blood of one man made perfect, Jesus. When it moves to Jesus, you join a select company of people whose history has already been paraded before you in Hebrews chapter 11. Those Old Testament saints who didn't live by works, they live by faith. You join in their ranks. And they all stand before God, not in fear, though He's a judge and He will judge, but with confidence. You become part of His church. You join the even greater assembly of God's kingdom, which involves other creations, including angels. You become part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. So if you made that decision here this morning, welcome. Welcome. It's a good place to be. Now, if you noticed, these particular Hebrew saints, they had already made that decision. Notice in verse 18, it says, For you've not come to Mount Sinai. And then when you get to verse 22, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion. See, that was what was so revolutionary in the first century. These people finally understood the real gospel, that you don't earn your way to God, you believe your way to God. That's how you come to God. But... And this brings us to the last warning passage of this book. Now, this would apply to every Christian here today. But now having that relationship and no longer living under the tyranny and the burden of earning their way to God, and in that sense, having the pressure off, there was no more have to in their life. See, that's what working your way to God puts on your shoulders all your life. Have to, have to, have to. That burden had been lifted from these people. But then they turned around and did what you and I do. And that's why this whole letter is full of warnings. They finally get the have to off of them, and they don't replace it with anything. No want to. What they did is they thought that now that that have to had been taken off their shoulders, that meant that they didn't have to do anything at all. Like some Christians today, being saved not by works but by grace became an excuse to act irresponsibly, to make up my own rules. Throw away the Ten Commandments. I'll just do what I want to do. I'm already a part of the kingdom. So I'll live as I want to live. I can do what I want to do, when and where I want to do it. Could that be you? Let me say it as clearly as I can. It matters a great deal to God how you live. Not because you have to. But it matters a great deal to Him that you understand as much as you believe in salvation by grace that you also understand how important you are in living out this life to Him. And that's what these Hebrew Christians had not understood. See, it started this chapter with a race. Run this race with endurance. Set aside, if you'll look back in verse 1, every encumbrance and every sin that you might run well. Mount Sinai says running well doesn't mean that you're going to gain acceptance with God. You already have acceptance with God. Mount Zion says, you run not for acceptance, but you run for things much greater than acceptance. You run so that you can please God, so that you can gain more out of this life, so that you can experience the glory at the end. Do you believe that as much as you believe salvation by faith? 
I'm, I know Christians who believe salvation by faith so strongly. But I think when they turn to this other side and believe that there is reward for living this life well, that living for eternal things outshines and outweighs all the other things that we can do, when you turn to that, their theology is just a thin little note scribbled and crinkled on a piece of paper. It has no flesh to it, no life to it, no color to it. But they'll claim salvation by faith all day. This passage says, you weren't saved for nothing. You were saved to run well, to do good things, to make a difference, to have an impact. And yet these Christians said, because we've been saved, we can relax. We don't have to anymore. No, you don't have to. But the God of eternity who's provided a way to His holy mountain is saying, but don't you want to? Doesn't it stir a passion in you? Doesn't it build a fire in you to make a difference? And if not, don't you understand that though you are still mine, at the end, there may be nothing for you? See, that's the warning that's here. Look at verse 25. See to it that you not, do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he promised, saying, Yet once more, one more time, will I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have a kingdom, we now possess a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, want to, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. See, this is an exhortation against stagnation, against exploitation of the grace that's been afforded you. It's an exhortation to what you can do. And what you can do as a Christian here in 1992 is extremely important. But I want you to know the warning is this. If you do nothing, you may gather up all your treasures, and at the end, God is going to shake this universe and those things that were done of no account will pass away. They will. Do you believe that? You know, sometimes I've sat with all the things going on around me and I've wondered, do I really believe that? God shakes even now. He does it in, in more handcrafted, personal ways. But you see it all the time around you, don't you? People who try to build their little empires with money and with pleasure and all kinds of activities. And every once in a while, God gives a little tremor and all of it comes crashing down. And they find it was of no account. Worthless. And yet they spent all their time worrying and wringing their hands and thinking how they could do more and have more and be more. And God shakes it just a little bit and falls flat. Those are just little warning signs. That at the end, unless we live for Him, He'll shake it all away. I believe that just as much as I believe that I will stand before God not based on my performance, but based on His. 
It says God is our consuming fire. Verse 29. Some have said of this verse, God will destroy what He cannot purify, and He will purify what He cannot destroy. This chapter 12 has been an incredible chapter. It tells us that the whole movement of God in our lives is to get us on the top of Mount Zion. That's where He's trying to bring us. And regardless of the trials and the pressures and the circumstances we face, all these things are of a purpose for the person who has faith. All those things are meant to remove the obstacles that keep us from offering ourselves to Him. Not because He wants to take them away from us or good things away from us, because He wants to be standing at the finish line with gain, with glory, with a sense of saying, well done. That's what all this is about. So in this life, if you're to run, you've got to put off the sin and the encumbrances. You've got to run with endurance. You've got to understand that all this is not earning your way to God, but that all of it at the end is a way of God saying, thanks for trusting me. Enter into the kingdom. Be satisfied. Enjoy. Do you believe that? If you believe that, you will not finish your life on this earth without knowing at least one thing, one ministry that you can do for Jesus Christ. And if you go through this life and keep excusing yourself to when you come to the day that you have still not figured out what those things or that one thing is, then you have said to God, the one who has paved the way to you, you've said to Him, I don't believe. It's a good thing to think about these things. Because we're a church that's going to make a difference. But for us to make a difference, each individual life has to decide to run well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this hour, the tremendous worship that we've enjoyed, the music, the sense that, uh, Lord, You're in our midst. Now I pray. Heavenly Father, that you would take these words, sobering words in some respects, and then in other respects, tremendous burden-lifting words to bring us closer to yourself. Though you are different from us, you do in fact desire an intimate love relationship. And if we learn to do it your way, we will have what you desire and that ultimately we desire. And that is an intimate relationship forever. We thank you for what we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.